The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hey, Billy, why don't we tell them what we're about, man? So we're here to welcome you to the Madhouse Chronicles. It's a talk show with myself, Billy Morrison. And me, Ozzy This man, Prince of Darkness, and we watch and react to the maddest internet clips. What do we discuss, Ozzy? Drugs, rock and roll, aliens, all that kind of shit. Drugs, rock and roll, aliens, and all that kinds of shit. Come and join Ozzy and myself. Visit OsborneMediaHouse.com to get special access to... Come to, on! What do you say? Do you think it's the wildest show on the internet? Oh. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by A Copy Match. A Copy Match is a boutique matchmaking service that helps exceptional singles find meaningful connections and relationships. To learn more about our matchmaking services, online dating makeovers and takeovers, or to enroll in an upcoming group coaching intensive, go to agapimatch.com. Welcome to the Ask a Matchmaker podcast. I'm your host, Matchmaker Maria. For over a decade, I've combined four generations of family matchmaking tradition with modern relationship psychology, behavioral science, and dating trends. With this unique expertise, I answer your dating and relationship questions on the podcast and online. If you're not already following me, you can find me on Instagram. I'm at Matchmaker Maria. And while you're at it, follow this podcast, Ask a Matchmaker, and of course, my company, Agabi match. I'll include those links in my bio. This week's guest is Terry Real. Terry Real is an internationally recognized family therapist, speaker, author, and the founder of the Relational Life Institute, better known as RLI. He wrote the book on male depression, and he's the marriage counselor to Esther Perel turns to and Bruce Springsteen and Bradley Cooper are among his clients and fans. His latest book, us getting past you and me to build a more loving relationship published by goop comes out yesterday when you listen to this episode it came out yesterday and the forward was written by the boss i'm from new jersey so that's what i'm going to call him the boss bruce springsteen so that's a lot of fun terry reveals how individualism and patriarchy poison our most intimate relationships the excellent news, though, warmer, closer, more passionate relationships are possible if you have the right tools. His expertise on men's mental health and relationship issues have been featured on Good Morning America, The Today Show 2020, The Oprah Winfrey Show, and The New York Times, among many others. Terry, welcome to the Ask a Matchmaker podcast. Well, thank you, Ray. It's a joy to be here. I'm so happy you're here. Uh, so, you know, immediately, I mean, in, in reading some of your book already as like a pre-order, um, just so many questions, but what I really have to focus on today is what I just said about individualism and patriarchy. You know, what does that mean? What, you know, I think you mentioned in the book, it's like toxic cultures of individualism and patriarchy damage the interpersonal relationships. I'd love to learn more about that for my listeners. Okay, great. So uh, I'm going to hit it at two levels, uh, the social level and the level of our, uh, individual work. Uh, trauma and our neurobiology. But let me do the social level first. First of all, the idea of individualism is an idea. It's not like a natural fact. The people in the Middle Ages did not think of themselves as individuals. It was cooked up uh, by a bunch of wealthy, uh, white, gentried men in the Enlightenment uh, period uh, of our history. The idea of individualism, of course, fueled the American and French revolutions. It's done a lot of good, but it's also done a lot of harm. And the essence of uh, individualism is I stand apart from nature. That's what the word individual means. I'm an individual apart from nature. And the, uh, the idea of individualism fuses with the older tradition of patriarchy, which I've been writing about for 30 years, uh, that says this, not only am I apart, I'm not in nature, I'm apart from nature, but I stand above nature and I dominate it. 
I can control nature. In the King James Version, at any rate, uh, God gave Adam dominion over all the things that walk and crawl and swim on this earth. Bad idea. The Greeks knew better. They called that hubris, overweening pride. Today we would call it grandiosity. Listen, we are not above nature. We do not control nature. We are in nature. And when you think that you're above and in control of nature, all hell breaks loose. Whether the nature that you think you're in control of is your partner mm -hmm. or your kids uh, or your colleagues at work or your own mind, I've got to be less negative, or your body, I've got to lose 10 pounds, or other races, uh, I've got to control those people over there, or the planet, uh, I've got to con I'm in control of nature itself. If we don't trade in a power and control model for the wisdom of what I call an ecological humility, understanding that we're not above it, we're in it. We are gonna make a mess of things in our personal lives, in our society, and on the planet. So, for example, when we start thinking relationally instead of individualistically, the answer to the question who's right and who's wrong is who gives a damn? We don't care. What matters is how are you and I going to work like a team to make this work for both of us. That's shifting from individualistic me versus you thinking to ecological, relational, we're a team thing. Let me give you a very common example. Uh, honey, you're a reckless driver. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. I'm from New Jersey. I'm not a reckless driver. No, 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 no. Okay. That's what I call an objectivity battle. You're going to fight over, is he this or is he that, till the cows come home. You're never going to win. How about this? Honey, when you tailgate, you switch lanes, you drive 20 miles above the speed limit, I get myself really scared. As a favor to me, when I'm in the car with you, could you drive more conservatively so I don't have to be killing myself? Uh... Okay, hon, I'll do that for you. Problem solved. That's the difference between thinking like two different individuals versus learning to think like a team. And that's what this book is all about, how to act like a team. Do you give, does the book continue to give like these sort of examples or anecdotes, templates? Yeah, and, and concrete advice. Right. Uh, uh, real, real tips. So you're a bit of like when I read this and and and, and knowing you know your 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 past books, uh, you're a bit of a relationship anthropologist here. That's beautiful. As you're speaking before about individualistic and collective collective, I mean you're not even talking about class right now. You're talking about individualistic mindset. I have like so many questions now in terms of like where your research has taken you when it comes to this mindset. For instance, do you feel like you know, we're both based in the United States. Do you feel like the U.S. had the relationships um, and let's say even our colloquial language of how we speak to each other? Is it more individualistic by design? Yes, it is. Americans are probably the most individualistic culture on the planet right now. Uh, not, not to offend anybody, but, you know, there's been a lot written about. Uh, I have back when we were all trying to pull this uh, COVID thing together, don't tell me to wear a mask. I have the right to put your health in danger because it's right, my right. right to do what I want with my face. It's my right to not get a vaccine. Oh, I mean, even now, right now, the conversation is about gun control. And, you know, I am a person who has two young children. And, you know, what I keep hearing from people that are enthusiastic about guns, because there is certainly a distinction here, is you know, I have a right to this. And it's like, yes, okay, I, I acknowledge your right, but also I, I don't want my children or anyone I love or, or even anyone you love to get killed senselessly. You know, like we have to find a solution here that works for all of us instead yeah. of victim blaming. Right. And when the, when the American founders of the revolution created all of this, I go into this in the book, the history of it a little bit. Oh. And it was assumed that they understood that uh, unbridled selfishness was going to make a mess and that there had to be other forces. And they talked about virtue. Uh, 
and uh, the the sense of citizenship mm. uh, that was really central to America, and that cut some of this individual rights stuff. And I write about this, you know, back in colonial days, it was small towns, villages, and farms. And we all lived face to face with each other. And there was an understanding that screwing over your neighbor uh, was not good for anybody. And people had a sense of virtue, of, of civility, of not doing that. That has gone through the boards. But let's also take it back to personal relationships. Mm. Uh, people stand up for their rights uh, and they blow their... Rela I, I want to write a piece. Uh, I'm negotiating, I won't say which one, with the magazine right now. And the title of the piece is going to be called uh, Your Empowerment May Be Killing Your Relationship. Tell me more about this. I talk about the difference between individual empowerment and relational empowerment. Okay. And individual empowerment, this is particularly big for women, is I was weak, now I'm strong, go screw yourself. Mm. I found my voice and I'm going to, I'm going to, I am woman, hear me roar, stand back, I'm going to say it any old way I want to, and tough shit. That is not skilled. I talk about relational empowerment. I was weak, now I'm strong, I'm going to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with you, I'm going to duke out what I need from you. Oh, by the way, honey, what would you like from me? How could I help you? I call this helping them win. What do you need from me to give me what I want from you? Who talks like that in this culture? Nobody. You have to learn how, and that's what this book is about. So in that, you just you know who talks like that in this culture, it does make me wonder. I, I know in previous episodes of my podcast, I've spoken about this with other people, but I know, like I speak another language, right? And in, in that particular language, I speak Greek, right? It's my it's my first mm -hmm. language. And I also speak Greek at home. My husband and I, we, we speak Greek to each other. And what I notice when I speak to my husband and maybe an ex-boyfriend who maybe didn't speak Greek is that by default, when we first met, it's very personal, right? Because in Greek and also in other Romance languages, and I'm sure many other languages, we gender a lot of nouns. Right. So for instance, in English, I would say, you know, I live with her. If someone asks, you know, who do you live with? I would say, oh, I live with a roommate. But if you ask me in Greek, who do you live with? I would say, which I just said, I have a male roommate. Right. Right. And so suddenly it's like, okay, wait, more questions. Like, so suddenly you're, you just met someone, but now you've told them about a living arrangement that might pose more questions. Um, and similar to that, you know, I think about how in my culture too, as a, as a Greek person, also as a Greek American person where I, you know, some of my friends are Greek American. I think about this concept I've talked about in the, my previous episodes about gubaria. Gubaria is, gubaro is the person, is a name, is a noun, is what we call someone who marries you. So in my culture, in Greek Orthodox Christianity, someone is your official witness. So they like marry you. They, you know, would put the rings on your fingers. They put right. the crowns on your heads, but they might also if not chosen those people, they might choose other people who also baptize your kids, right? So you suddenly, gubaria, which is um, anointed with oil, and in the Greek culture, oil is thicker than blood. So chosen family becomes more important than your own siblings. Wow. Um, you have this very overcomplicated family structure because now you're allowing all of these new people in your life who um, exist to make sure the relationship continues to flourish. Yeah. So I see this. And then I think about, you know, I think about living in America and it's like, okay, here the language is very sterile and, and the culture is also very individualistic. And I'm not saying that it's better to live in Europe or better to speak a different language. That's certainly not what I'm saying. But I definitely will say that as someone who gets to experience a subculture in a different country, I am extremely drawn to collectivist attitudes Great. when it comes to relationships and I, this will pose into my next question, you know, in that way, because I'm extremely drawn to it. I am a person who supports joint finance situations as long as there's conversations. What do you see in your research? I, look, um, it, how the couple manages their money it, it, it can 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 vary. But I'm, a, I'm after bigger game than that. Mm -hmm. Are you thinking like a team? Or are you thinking like me? That, that's the title of the book, Getting Past Me and You. Are you thinking it's me versus you? Once you're in a one of us wins, one of us loses mentality, you're screwed. You're, you're out. You're no longer thinking relationally. And we do 
lose the part of us that can remember that we're a team when we're triggered. Remember I told you I was going to talk about neurobiology? Okay. Yes, go. I go into this in detail in the book. Our Mm -hmm. autonomic nervous system, far below our consciousness, scans our body four times a second. Am I safe? Am I safe? Am I safe? Am I safe? If the answer is yes, I'm safe. We stay seated in the part of us I call the wise adult part of us. Prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that develops last, 26 years old, the the most mature part of the brain, the part of the brain that can remember us, can remember the whole, the relationship. If the answer is no, I don't feel safe, that part of the brain shuts down. The most mature part of us shuts down and more primitive parts of the brain take over. That's all about survival. Me versus you, us versus them, me, 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 I, 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 I. It's got nothing to do with the relationship. When you are in that part of the brain, you will never resolve anything because that part of the brain doesn't want to. Here's the thing, Maria. The most important question I ask myself as a couples therapist when I'm sitting with a couple is this. It's not what are the external stressors, because a good couple can handle stress. And it's not even what's the choreography, which is very important. You know, the more she pursues, the more he distances, and the more he distances, the more she pursues. The vicious circle that goes around and around and around. That's very important, but it's not the most important. The most important question is this. Which part of you am I speaking to? Am I speaking to the wise adult, prefrontal cortex, here and now, non-triggered, able to stop and think and make deliberate choices? Or am I speaking to the traumatized part of you that's flooded, hair trigger, knee-jerk response, automatic, it has everything to do with what happened to you in your childhood, and how you adapted to it. So there are two young parts of you. There's the wise adult part of you, and then there's the famous wounded child part that uh, all the trauma people work with. That's the part of you that's very young, up to three, four, uh, just flooded with the experience of either the abuse or neglect that you uh, dealt with as a child. Between these two, very mature, very young, is what I call the adaptive part of you. The adaptive child part of you is the you that you put together facing whatever you face with to adapt to it. You know, my pal Gabor Mate says, you rarely see the wound, you see the scar. Mm-hmm. And what ha- the people, I work with couples on the brink of divorce, that's my beat. And virtually everybody who comes to see me lives their lives out of the adaptive child part of them, thinking that it's an adult, and it's not. So uh, you can be a fighter. I want our listeners to out themselves, and you too, if you would. Fight, flight, or fix. What's your knee-jerk response when you're in that heated flooded moment. Where, where do you go, Maria? Fight, flight, or... Fi- and by the way, you can flee and be six inches away from somebody. That's called stonewalling. Sorry, is your question asking me, like, what do I do when I'm fighting with my partner? What do you do when you're triggered? When when you're uh, in... When you're, you've lost your shit and you're in the moment. Where, do you fight? Do you flee? Or do you fix? Um, I fix. And it might look like flight. Like, I think... My husband and I, we acknowledge as quickly as possible. We have a safe word or safe phrase. It's a ridiculous safe phrase, but we have a safe phrase. So when things get too heated, we say, one of us has to say it to each other, which it means pause. It means five minute pause, go to separate rooms, and then we come back and, and try to fix it, try to figure out, talk about it. That's that we learned this trick. I don't know, 10 years, you know, nine years ago. Yeah. And it's worked for us. I mean, you know, I feel like I'm in a very healthy relationship, but in, in, I would love, I would, I love what you're saying here. Like that flight fight or fix 
Is there one that's better than most? Because I, to me, the fixing part, no, and no, I guess no, that's no, where let, I'm let, let me be okay, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Fixing, what you're doing with your husband is working on your relationship. Okay. That's good. I'm going to double back on that. That's not what I'm talking about. Okay. When I talk about the adaptive child response, it's automatic. It's compulsive. It's like, shit, I got to do this. I'm a fighter. I fight. I fight. Absolutely fight. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, what you're doing with that five-minute pause, that's brilliant. That's the essence of the book. That is when you're triggered, when you're in your adaptive child, in your case, when you're in your fighter, you take five minutes or 50 or however long it takes, you breathe, you get back in the center, and what I call remember love. You remember the person that you're talking to is not that son of a gun that you need to beat into the ground. He's the guy you love. And the reason why you're talking is to make, in other words, you move out of that triggered adaptive child part of you back into your wise adult, and then you deal with your husband. That is the essence of what I'm teaching in this book. I call it relational mindfulness. In the heat of the moment, take a break, Take a pause, take a walk around the block, have a little chat with that little girl fighter that you uh, learned somewhere in your childhood, and uh, get her in the back seat. You're not driving the bus, I am. I call that relational mindfulness, and it's the way out of this mess. Does that mode come from watching how your parents fight? Because that's where I feel like when I think of my parents, they fight. And it's like, is that where I learned everything? Because I don't think of my childhood as like traumatic or abuse. I mean, I guess like, you know, in thinking back to me, you know, my parents, they immigrated to this country when I was two years old, you know, with nothing. They had to find jobs. You know, it's like a whole thing. It's, you know, it's the immigrant experience, right? And, uh, you know, my dad, his education goes up to middle school. So he's limited on some job opportunities that he, you know, maybe could reach for. And, um you know, in watching my parents, I remember how my parents fight. And then it's like, oh, is that is that what I'm learning? It's like, yeah, that's what you're learning. Okay. There are two ways that the adaptive child gets created. You either react to what's happening to you. Like mm-hmm. if you have an intrusive mom, you build up a big wall. Mm-hmm. The, bigger, the bigger the intrusion, the bigger the wall. That's one way you adapt. And the other is you model it. You see what they do, and then you do it yourself. In your case, it's modeling. And you're Greek. Look, you know, you're you're more expressive. You fight. But one of the things I teach uh, couples is, if you're going to fight in front, if you're going to show the kids the fight, show them the makeup. Mm-hmm. Show them the repair. And a lot of parents don't do that. So, you know, I, I will admit, since you're saying about outing, okay, I've never seen my parents repair, ever. What they do is... They would fight. And this is where I think I remember being, I remember when I met my husband, I, I, I admired him and I liked him so much. I wanted it to work out. And I remember thinking like, I don't want to fight like my parents. I don't. So that's where that state, like, let's like, let's come together, figure out what we're going to do. Because what I would do is I would storm off and then, you know, maybe a few hours would pass and I would act like nothing happened. And of course, that's what my parents did, right? My parents, my sister calls it the food offering. That was the peace offering. Someone would make a coffee and that is the symbol. And like now as an adult, you know, I care for my my parents now. And we had this massive explosion. Um, I remember on New Year's 2020, just massive, you know, we went out at and it was because I got tired of them. Like there was a, you know, a fight and they're like, okay, you know, we go away. And I'm like, no, 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 we're going to deal with this. And it's like suddenly we have to deal with like 35 years uh, of unpent frustration. Uh, but beautiful that you did that. You know, one of the things I teach is that all relationships are an endless dance of harmony, disharmony, and repair. Closeness, disruption, and a return from, to closeness. I got that from Ed Tronic, an infant observational researcher who, who looked at mothers and infants and came up with this idea. You know, the infant's all cozy, then ah, the infant freaks out and the mother freaks out, and then the, the pacifiers, etc., and the infant's all cozy. Endless repetitions of this. And what your parents didn't show you was repair. They showed you the fight. So the adaptive child part of you, 
when you get triggered, you're a fighter. But the wise adult comes in and says, let's take a break. I don't want to do this. And that's what this work is all about, is strengthening, giving tools to that wise adult part of you that isn't just going to do the knee-jerk reaction, but something thought. Can I, can I tell you a story? Absolutely. This is a story I'm using everywhere to illustrate. It's a true story. So I deal with couples on the brink of divorce. That's my beat. So a couple on the brink of divorce. The guy is a pathological liar. He mm. lies about everything. And, and he's one of these guys, you say to him, the sky is blue. He says, it's aquamarine. He won't give it to you, right? It's like, right. No matter what. He, he I won't. feel like you're talking about this guy that I dated. I remember we saw a movie and I said, this happened. And he's like, no, it did. And then we got this massive. I'm like, but I saw it. Like, why are you gaslighting me? All right. you know, I totally get it. Yeah. All right. So I talk about someone's dysfunctional relational stance. The thing they do out of their adaptive child. The thing they do over and over, like for you fighting, for me fighting, mm. over and over and over again that gets them into trouble. So I, in five minutes, I could figure out this guy's relational stance was evasion. He, he, was a, he had a black belt in evading. You know, the sky's blue. Well, not really. No matter what you gave him, he would evade it. So, okay. So I think relationally, if you're thinking like a normal person, what I'm about to say sounds brilliant. But when you learn to think relationally, it's like falling off a log. If he is a champion evader, then and he learned that in his childhood growing up, who was he evading? So I ask him, who tried to control you growing up? Bingo, his father. A military man, how he ate, how he drank, how he sat, what he wore, who he dated, what courses, everything. I say to him, how did you deal with this controlling father? He looks at me and he smiles. Now that smile's a tip-off. That's the smile of resistance. I like that. I said, how did you deal with this father? He says, I lied. Brilliant. Brilliant little boy. And I teach my therapist, always respect the exquisite intelligence of that adaptive child. You did exactly what you needed to do to preserve yourself and your integrity back then. Brilliant that you lied. However, I have a saying, adaptive then, maladaptive now. You're not that four-year-old boy. Your wife is not your father. So we float all this, right? This is an absolutely true story. They come back two weeks later, hand in hand, all smiles. They say we're cured. I say, okay, there's a story here. Tell me what happened. This is absolutely true. Over the weekend, she sent him to a grocery store to buy, say, 12 things. And true to form, he comes home with 11. The wife says to him, where's the pumpernickel? He says, every muscle and nerve in my body was screaming to say they were out of it. And on this day, in this moment, I took a breath. I looked my wife in the eyes and I said, I forgot the pumpernickel. And she burst into tears. True story. And she said, I've been waiting for this day for 25 years. That's recovery. That's what I'm looking for. That's what this book is all about. Is that, is that a flight, what you're describing? Was he in flight? Right, the fleer. And, and what is fix? His lying was a form of fleeing. Fix is different than a um, sober, let me do what I can do to work on this relationship. Fix is a knee-jerk, compulsive, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, you don't feel good. It's it's codependence. You don't feel, mm-hmm. let me take your upset away because I can't stand that you're upset. Well, I'll do anything, just, just don't be upset. And that's different from a thoughtful, let me do what I can to make this relationship better. That's really... Um, it's compulsive. It feels like the world's going to end if this person's upset with you. Uh, It's very much what uh, we used to call codependence in people. You know, you're upset. Let me twist myself into knots so that you're not upset. That's very different from thinking, okay, 
what could I do right now to make this relationship better? One is coming from an early childhood place, and the other is coming from an adult place. They may look the same, but they're, they've got completely different energies. In talking about, you know, toxicity and even patriarchy here, you know, one of the things that I'm realizing from just like my own research and studies and my mentors is that there is this pronounced, I guess the word is enmeshment, you know, yeah. where the, I don't know if it's triangulation here, but it's like the sun. So in the, a lot of, let me take a step back. A lot of people that express avoidant attachment tend to be male and many of those people have I noticed? Yeah. I mean, I remember I remember meeting Dr. Amir Levine and him telling me that 30% of men in Manhattan were uh, in the avoidance uh, quandary. And I was just like, kind of just shocked by that, by that figure. I was like, wow. And then in studying more, not through Levine, but others, there is this enmeshment and, and, and emotional over-involvement, inappropriate, yeah. I would say, between right. the mother and the son because of, let's say, an inconsistent other parental figure. Let's just, if we're being heteronormative, the father figure has right whatever. And so now in like, you know, listening to you speak, I'm just wondering like where in, in your work, where do you see this part of toxicity in relationships? Because the one thing that I have realized is that it's really hard for men to rewire out of enmeshment without personally acknowledging it. Like it's not enough for you to say, you have issues. They have to admit that they have issues. You're right on the money on a number of fronts. First of all, let's back it up so people understand what we're talking about. Sure. Enmeshment is when a parent uses a child. Uh, and it can be very positive. Uh, you're the light of my life. You're the pride of the family. You're the hero. It is actually a form of enmeshment. I don't love you for you. I love you for what you're doing for me or for us. And it's really tricky. You know, I, I wrote, in, in us, I wrote this. Uh, what's the most destructive phrase in the English language? Honey, you understand me better than your father. Oh, oh, okay. Gives you the creeps, doesn't that? Yeah. That's enmeshment. Anyway, when you have an enmeshment history, uh, you're paranoid about intrusion because you've been intruded upon. You, 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 your boundaries have been violated. So you're, you're, you're skittish about it. And then you, yes, then you become avoidant. Um, it's not the only way you can, there, I, I talk about two different kinds of avoidance. Mm -hmm. If you have enmeshment or intrusion in your background, you can become avoidant because you're paranoid about being intruded upon. The other way is you could grow up in like a high wasp Yankee family. I, I work in Boston where everybody operates behind walls and everybody's avoidant. And it's like, what's the big whoop? I mean, is, isn't this normal? If, if you have a, a intrusion in your background and you're avoidant, you're reacting to the trauma that happened to you. If you grew up in a family where everybody's avoidant and so what's the problem? You're modeling what happened to you. Remember mm -hmm. I said, your two right. ways you could, okay. If I'm treating an avoidant who grew up in an avoidant family, I have to sell them on the idea of intimacy because they think that intimacy is sort of squishy and like bad taste somehow. Um, and I have to say to them, look, you're fine the way you are. If you lived in a cave, you'd be great, but you it's fool. You got a wife and kids and they need you. You can't live behind walls. Every day you're behind these walls, you're hurting your family. If I deal with an avoidant who is primarily reacting to a boundaryless enmeshment, then I have to do trauma work with them. I have to go back to that little boy or little girl who could not say no and do the unwinding work of releasing some of that wound and some of that uh, energy and teaching them that they have the right to say no now. And one of the things I say is that the cure for love avoidance is negotiation. I have the right to stand up for myself. Uh, people who have that history don't believe they have that right, and so they stay out of the ring. Uh, the cure for love avoidance is the capacity to say no to somebody. But you have to teach people how to do that.
Wow. Um, how does this now relate? You know, you're meeting at work. You know, you work with. Oh, absolutely, Maria. I wanted to bring that back to the oh, yeah, big yeah. picture of why so many men are avoidant. Right. Okay. And that brings us right back to patriarchy. Across the West, women are asking for more emotional intimacy from men than we raise boys and men to deliver. Mm. The essence of traditional masculinity, and it's changing with the younger men, thank God, but it's still very much with us. The essence of traditional masculinity is invulnerability. The more invulnerable you are, the more manly you are, the more vulnerable you are, the more unmanly you are. Look at the boys' superheroes. The problem is that vulnerability is what makes us intimate with each other. So we've got a lot of frustrated women out there. And particularly if you go back a generation or two. And so what I talk about, and I, I write this, and is what I call the unholy triad of patriarchy. You have a either irresponsible or cut off father. You have a lonely, unmet mother. And you have a sweet little boy in the middle. And that little boy feels his mother's unhappiness. She doesn't have to do a thing. She doesn't have to do a thing to enmesh with him. He's enmeshed with her because he feels her suffering and he wants to make mommy feel better. The minute he starts to step into the breach and make mommy feel better, you've got an avoidant on your hands. When he grows up, he thinks that his job is going to be servicing other people He's going to think that his needs don't count, and he's going to stay distant and avoidant. This is normal, quote unquote, uh, under the uh, under the flag of patriarchy. It just reminds me of um, I, you know, I, I suppose my generation when they were younger and the previous generations. I'm an older millennial. Um, you know that phrase. You know, when little boys cried, oh, boys don't cry. Like you kind of cut off the the emotional range from children so young. I remember um, having to correct my father when my son was, I think, two years old. He fell and he was crying. And my dad's like, come on, you're strong. Don't cry. And I go, no, no, Baba, let him experience pain. It's okay. He can cry. You know, it's it's fine. And my dad never did that again. He like totally like it's like me acknowledging and pointing out that why is it okay for him to cry? You know, I get you're comforting him, but you can use different words. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And we do have the responsibility to teach older generations, but this shit is still going on. So ingrained. It's still going on every day in our culture. And if you are different with your son, trust me, he knows the game when he goes on the playground. You may be different, but the other kids on the playground, they're still operating on the old script particularly for boys. Uh, after feminism, for a girl to cross into boyland, you know, mixed. But for a boy to cross into girlland, the, the, the punishment is severe and ugly. It's, it still happens. I mean, it's so interesting to see how people react. Um, like my son is four and a half. He does ballet and he does tap and he with Barbies because frankly that was a choice of ours me and my husband the Barbie thing because he wanted a doll and of course with boys you think okay superheroes but the superheroes they were not colorful they were carrying weapons they looked angry and I was like he's at the time I was like he's three why are we allowing I like Elsa looks happy and it's a nice color and you know suddenly he liked the dolls and he does ballet and tap and what's interesting is like People sometimes will talk about his sexuality. And I'm like, why are you sexualizing a toddler? Like, he's not, he might be straight. You know, he might be gay. It doesn't matter for me and my husband. But it's so interesting how people, you have to kind of like, I don't try to react when this happens. I just kind of ask them questions like, so what would you do if your son expressed interest in dance? Um, yeah, beautiful. You know, like let people well, kind of figure out like, themselves. I, I'll tell you a story. Yeah. Uh, my wife, uh, the great family therapist, Belinda Berman, we've been married 37 years. You don't mess with my wife. So my son, Alec, we have two boys and one's a super jock and the other is uh, more arty and, and, you know, he did ballet. He's, in fact, he became, uh, uh, now he's a doctor, but he, he, for a while he was a professional ballet dancer. That's amazing. 
And um, uh, when he was young, uh, he liked to dress up in all sorts of things, but his favorite was a dress. He liked to dress up as Barbie the Good Witch. And uh, one of our friends, uh, a well-known gender expert, uh, known nationally, took it upon herself to call Belinda. Now, my son was three years old, okay? Right. That's how young she said, And she said, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm worried about your son's gender confusion because he wears that dress. And without missing a beat, Belinda says to her, oh, my God, I hadn't thought about that. You know, he dresses up like a bear, too. Do you think he might have species confusion? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so much of like what little kids do to me is like they're just expressing creativity in, in different forms. And, you know, and then they and then they snap back to like it's it, then so much of what norm is, I think. And maybe I'm you'll have to tell me so much of what norm is, is also just, uh, you know, I think our natural instinct to do certain things. And so like my son, I don't know, it's I don't I mean, I'm obviously not talking about him, you know, but uh, it's just interesting to see how to me, I'm always taken back by how young it starts, not only just like the gender and the sexuality stuff, like the messaging from society, but even now in discussing with you, our experiences as single people or as relationships that is ingrained to us at that young age as well. That's right. That's right. And that's all part of what I call the adaptive child part of us. And we can take a breath and we can reach for a more mature part of us and we can make better uh, decisions, just like that that chronic liar did on that day. Right. You know, people talk about uh, relationships take work, but they never tell you what it is. Uh, here's the deal. The work of relationship is not even day by day. The work of relationship is minute to minute. In this heated moment right now, am I going to go with my knee-jerk fight, fight, or fix? Or am I going to reach for something more mature? And, uh, and, and you may need to take a break. You may need to take a time out. You may need to walk around the block. But uh, it's what I call remembering love. Remember that the person you're speaking to is someone you care about, and the reason why you're speaking is to make things better. If you're not in that place, shut up. You're just going to make a mess of things. Wait until you're in that place before you try and work on anything. Do you work with, um, I want to ask a question about singles for, as well, but do you work with couples that are experiencing... In my, in my line of work, I call it a differentiation and morality plane, but like, let's say people with different politics that are, that just can't see eye to eye on certain things. Does that come to your office? Because we see that uh, since 2015, it has shifted. And then again, now in 2022, things have dramatically shifted two or three times for the moral plane, like constantly having to speak on your values and also like why you think this way. Yeah. I have a beautiful tape I show audiences. A couple on the brink of divorce. She's going to leave him. He describes himself as a moderate Republican, a Mitt Romney, uh, you know, fiscal conservative, but social moderate. She is a QAnon supporter. And they're going to kill each other. And uh, the work that I do with them is I say... Uh, if you're going to stay together, you're going to have to tolerate grief. You're going to be with another couple that's like this politically, and your heart is going to feel a pain. That's not you. You you are killing each other. When you say to... this, you mean like happy and aligned? Yeah, like happy and in alignment. Okay. And, and uh, you fundamentally disagree you don't have a difference of opinion. You have a difference of reality. You have right, a different right. worldview. And if you're going to stay together, you're going to have to grieve the closeness that you wish for and accept the difference between you because there's so much else that you love about each other that it makes it worthwhile to do that grieving. Oh, and awesome. they looked at each other and she said, I think there's a little boy in John that needs to feel safe and I have not been letting him feel safe 
And he says, when I'm in your arms at night and we're cuddling before we go to sleep, I feel like I'm home. And um, they stayed together because they remembered the us. They remembered the relationship and what united them, not just what separated them. And it was enough to make the pain of what separated them worthwhile bearing. Wow, that's that's a very um, it's a very interesting story and not the direction that I thought you were going to go to, but I appreciate it even more. Like, I think that's brilliant and amazing. Now, in terms of like my single listeners, right? Yeah. What is something that they can do, but also look for in dating towards, you know, intentional, healthy relationships? What you want to do is you want to do your best to try and figure out uh, if this uh, guy, gal, or non-binary person, how they handle themselves in relationships. So ask them about their previous relationships, uh, particularly the ones that didn't work out, and see if they take responsibility or if they learned anything, or if they're all about blaming the other person and uh, bad-mouthing them. Uh, you want to meet them with friends. Eventually, you want to meet them with family. And you want to see how they handle themselves. And one of the things I say, particularly for women, uh, and I don't mean to be condescending, but I do say this, don't look for a guy who's perfect. Look for a guy who's educable. What look is it? What's the word? Educable. A guy who's willing to be educated. Look for a guy who's willing to learn a few things about what relational skills look like and mm -hmm. how to master them. Drag, drag that guy to our US workshop that's coming. But um, one of the things I believe is that in our culture, we teach women more about how to have relationships than we yeah. teach boys and men. That's okay. But if you've got a guy who's a good guy, who's willing to learn, don't you be the teacher that sets you up to be one up and condescending. But see if they're willing to learn a few things about how to have a relationship. And um, uh, and then the two of you can learn together. Well, that's a fantastic segue on uh, some bonus for my listeners. So let's talk about that first before we let you go. So first of all, you have, okay, so your book came out yesterday, June yes. 7th. Yeah. All right, and if someone buys the book this week, what happens? They get the Staying in Love course? Yes, they get a five-hour online course for couples and singles on basic relationship skills, exactly what I was just talking about. It's a $200 value for free, but you have to buy the book this week. So uh, buy the book for 20 bucks or whatever it is and get a $200 uh, online course that's yours for as long as you want. Uh, for free thrown in, but uh, the offer is only good the first uh, week. Do the they, is that offer available if they buy the book um, through your website, through the ep the link on my episode notes, or is it valid if they were to buy it through Amazon? A anywhere. Uh, you, you scan your receipt and send it to us, and we'll send you the online uh, course for free. That is awesome. And also, you have an online wor workshop, the first of its kind, called US, starts June 14th and goes into July. Tell tell us a little bit more about the US workshop. It's all about um, everything we've been talking about. It's a really, but it's really ratchets down to concrete skills. For example, um, your partner comes to you and they're, uh, they're upset. Uh, almost all of us uh, do two things. Our first reference point is objective reality. Is that true? Is that not true? We weigh it, sense by sense. We're rebutting, we're not listening. And the second reference is ourselves. I can't believe what a pain in the ass that is. Okay, I teach people to trade that in for compassionate listening to your partner's experience. Oh, honey, I'm sorry you feel bad. I don't want you to feel bad. Is there something I could say or do to help you feel better? That's the skill of repair. We teach that. We teach you how to stand up for yourself and cherish your partner in the same breath. Nobody knows how to do that. Instead of saying, Maria, don't talk to me like that. I say, Maria, I want to hear what you have to say. Say it softer so I can hear it. 
how to be cherishing and assertive in the same breath. That goes beyond patriarchy. We teach you how to negotiate. We teach you how to cherish. We teach you how to grieve, what to do when you're in your wise adult and your partner is in their adaptive child and all bets are off and how to deal with that moment. So very concrete techniques about how to live a more successful relational life for both couples and for individuals. That's, that starts in June. Yeah, another thing I'm excited about uh, is that this coming Thursday, I think it's June 9th, at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, uh, I will be having an online event with Gwyneth Paltrow. Gwyneth and I will be talking about the new book, Us, and about how to have uh, wonderful relationships. Uh, so uh, go to my website, terryreal.com, and uh, there will be a link, and we'll get you a link uh, to sign up. The way you sign up for the uh, online event with Gwyneth is you buy my book. I love that. So whoever's listening today, which most of you tend to listen on the day that this publishes, you're all going to buy Terry's book, and then you get access to his workshop, which is valid at $200. You get it for free, and you get to see Terry and Gwyneth talk relationships and talk about the book us. And that's just really exciting. This is so much fun. All of these links will be in the show notes. So have a look there. Uh, Terry, do you have social media? Can people follow you anywhere? The best way to uh, uh, get in touch with all this stuff is just go to my website. It's my name, terryreal.com, T-E-R-R-Y-R-E-A-L.com. We have all this stuff laid out for you. Uh, on the website. Amazing. Well, that is exactly what I'm going to include in the show notes as well. Uh, Terry, it was incredible having you on here. And I, I genuinely hope that we get to speak again. Oh, I would love that. You are, uh, you're a really spirited, smart, uh, <laughs> by my life, young woman. And uh, I really support the work you're doing with this podcast. Please keep it up. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to Ask a Matchmaker, as I've mentioned in previous episodes. If you want to be in an upcoming hotline episode, you can follow me on Instagram at matchmakermaria, and I'll post the link there, and then we will chat. Until then, you can learn more about what I do or enroll in an upcoming Agape Intensive by visiting agapematch.com services, or come to one of our retreats, agapeescapes.com. All of these links are in the show notes. Thank you again for listening to Ask a Matchmaker. Be lovable, and more importantly, be likable. See you next week. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.